Welcome to Peds Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. Get your EpiPens ready, because this episode is all about food allergies. It's estimated that about 4% of kids have food allergies, and studies show that the prevalence is increasing in the last 20 years. As common as they are, there are a lot of misconceptions about what actually constitutes a food allergy. The most recent guidelines from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease were published in 2010, with an update in 2017, and come in at 135 pages with 347 references. It's publicly available online, but if you don't feel like wading through it yourself, it's going to be our major jumping off point for this episode. There's a lot to cover, from symptoms to diagnosis to management, so let's get started. Like I mentioned, somewhere around 1 in 25 kids in the U.S. has a food allergy, with milk, eggs, peanuts, tree nuts, soy, wheat, fish, and shellfish as the most common triggers. The risks for developing food allergies are similar to any other kind of allergy, namely a family history of atopic disease and a personal history of atopic dermatitis. There's a lot of variability from patient to patient and even allergen to allergen. Peanut allergies are usually there for life, but milk and egg allergies usually go away by school age. For some reason, egg allergy was the one I could find the most data about. In 2007, a retrospective review of 881 U.S. patients was published and showed a steady increase in the percentage of patients who developed tolerance to eggs as the years went by, starting with 11% at 4 years old, then up to 26% at 6, 53% at 10, and by age 16, 82% were able to eat eggs without any kind of reaction. Before we get too much further, we should get some definitions straight. The NIAID defines a food allergy as any adverse health event that arises from a specific immune response that occurs reproducibly on exposure to a given food. That means a true food allergy has to be consistent and reproducible, but most importantly, it needs to be an immunologic response to a specific antigen. If the adverse reaction isn't caused by the immune system, it's a food intolerance, and if it isn't specific, it's not a true allergy. That's not the easiest concept to wrap your head around, so we have a couple examples. If your patient gets bloating, gas, and diarrhea every time he eats dairy, but all the allergy testing is negative, he's probably lactose intolerant, not allergic. This reaction is reproducible, but it's caused by unabsorbed lactose passing into the colon, not his immune system. Specificity is a little trickier. Let's say you're seeing a 10-month-old whose parents are worried about a food allergy. When she eats orange slices, strawberries, or blueberries, the skin around her mouth turns red, even after mom wipes away the baby mess. There aren't any hives or trouble breathing, just red, irritated-looking skin that fades away after a few hours. You'll want to get a little more history, but odds are this isn't an allergy. Without hives or signs of airway swelling, the skin changes aren't overly concerning, and the similar reaction to a broad range of triggers means it isn't specific. In this case, the patient probably has nonspecific skin irritation after smearing herself with food and fruit juice. True food allergies cover a really broad spectrum of reactions. The most extreme, and what comes to mind for most people when you mention food allergies, is anaphylaxis. Anaphylaxis is a sudden, severe systemic reaction that happens when antigen-bound IgE triggers mast cells and basophils to degranulate and release histamine. Usually within an hour of exposure, smooth muscles in the airways constrict, blood vessels dilate, and capillaries become more permeable, leading to fluid leakage and swelling. The swelling and airway constriction make it hard to breathe, and the vasodilation and loss of intravascular volume as fluid moves from the vessels into tissue can cause shock. Peanuts are the leading cause of fatal and near-fatal anaphylaxis, with tree nuts, fish, and shellfish next on the list. 
Other risk factors for fatal anaphylaxis are asthma, delayed treatment with epinephrine, and being an adolescent or young adult. We won't really spend any time on treatment. It's pretty much epinephrine along with circulatory and respiratory support until the reaction passes. For now, remember epinephrine for anaphylaxis, and we'll get into more depth on shock another time. A little less severe than anaphylaxis are urticaria, which everyone outside medicine calls hives, and angioedema. The underlying mechanism is similar, histamine leads to tissue swelling, but it's usually not as severe or systemic as an anaphylactic reaction. You have to watch out for airway swelling and angioedema, particularly if it affects the face or neck, but most of the time these patients won't need epinephrine and antihistamines are usually enough to get you through until the reaction calms down. There's also a really wide range of food allergies that manifest as GI symptoms. There's immediate GI hypersensitivity, which can cause vomiting and stomach discomfort within minutes, and lower GI symptoms like cramping and diarrhea anywhere from minutes to a few hours after exposure. Food protein-induced proctocolitis and enterocolitis also fall on the spectrum of allergic reactions. Proctocolitis is generally less severe. There aren't any systemic symptoms. The main sign is streaks of blood and mucus in the stool. Enterocolitis affects more of the gut and has more pronounced symptoms with vomiting, abdominal pain, diarrhea, and often leads to failure to thrive in younger kids. Avoiding triggering foods is the best way to manage these kinds of reactions. It might be hard to identify them at first, but remember, if it's a true allergy, the symptoms will be consistent and reproducible, so a food diary is going to be the most helpful tool for your patients and their parents to make a diagnosis. The last kind of reaction to mention, mostly because it comes up on tests every now and then, is oral allergy syndrome. In this case, your patient is going to tell you that every time he eats certain raw fruits or vegetables, he gets itching, tingling, and maybe a little swelling in his lips, mouth, tongue, and throat. Oral allergy syndrome is a localized IgE reaction that's associated with pollen, and as you probably guessed, it's more common in patients with pollen allergies. There's not much that needs to be done in terms of management. Again, avoidance works best, and antihistamines can help with symptom relief if you absolutely can't give up strawberries. So what should you do when you have a patient or a parent who's concerned about a food allergy? As always, the first thing to do is get more history. You want to really drill down on exactly what happens, if it's the same every time, what food it's associated with, how long after exposure symptoms develop, and, maybe most importantly of all, if your patient has ever been exposed to the food without having symptoms, and if the symptoms have ever been present without a food exposure. Getting a good history in any situation can save your patients unnecessary testing, but it's even more true for food allergies than for other conditions. It's estimated that anywhere from 50 to 90% of presumed food allergies aren't actually allergies at all. A meta-analysis published in 2007 in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology found that 35% of people who have had some kind of reaction to a particular food think they have an allergy, but only 3.5% actually had an allergy confirmed by testing. It doesn't make a whole lot of difference unless your patient's reaction is anaphylaxis. The management is avoidance for allergy, intolerance, or any other unpleasant reaction. But it's important to know the difference as you go into practice. When you do decide to get testing for your patient, the two most commonly used methods are skin prick testing and in vitro IgE assays. With skin prick testing, a small amount of a potential allergen gets placed just under the surface of the skin to see if there's a reaction, usually an itchy bump with redness around it called a wheel and flare. For comparison, and to make sure the skin is reacting normally, there are positive and negative controls included on every skin prick test, usually histamine, which everyone reacts to, and water or saline, which nobody should. In vitro IgE assays do a similar thing, but on a molecular level. 
Don't worry about the details, but basically the patient's serum is exposed to different allergens and you look to see what substances were bound by IgE. IgE testing is usually reserved for patients who have dermatographism, severe dermatitis, or some other contraindication to skin prick testing. The NIAID recommends against testing for allergies to broad panels of food and instead choosing your challenges based on the patient's history. Without any supporting medical history, both skin prick testing and in vitro IgE assays only have about a 50% positive predictive value. That means without a good history, a positive result on the test only goes along with a true food allergy about half the time. What's happening the rest of the time? There are a couple possibilities. The entire purpose of your digestive system is to break down food into building blocks your body can use. If you eat a soybean, the same protein that caused you to have a positive skin prick or IgE test to soy might be so broken down by the time your immune system sees it that the IgE binding site isn't recognizable anymore. If you've never had a reaction to a given food, you should be fine to keep eating it despite what the tests say. The other issue that comes in, more for IgE testing than for skin prick, is sensitization versus allergy. If someone has antibodies against a substance, they're sensitized. Their body sees that antigen as foreign and has developed antibodies to recognize it. But if exposure to that antigen doesn't cause any kind of reaction, they aren't allergic. Again, clinical history matters more than what the lab says. Let's put it in context with an example. You decide to do allergy testing for a three-year-old boy because he seems to get hives every time he eats eggs, and you go with an IgE assay because he has pretty bad eczema. Sure enough, he tests positive for IgE to eggs, but he's also positive for milk, which he drinks all the time without any problems. He's almost definitely allergic to eggs, but only sensitized to milk. The gold standard for diagnosing a food allergy is a double-blind, placebo-controlled food challenge where the patient and the person giving the food samples have no idea what's in them. That can be a little hard to pull off, so single-blind and open challenges can also be useful. Patients should eliminate suspected foods for at least two weeks before the test, and of course it should be done in a supervised medical setting just in case of a bad reaction. Obviously, if there are no symptoms at all after exposure, it doesn't matter whether the challenge was blinded or not. Similarly, if there are objective symptoms that go along with the clinical history, the test is probably valid. Where it gets tricky is when the patient has more subjective symptoms, nausea, itching without a rash, general stomach discomfort, and then a blinded test is more helpful. Food challenges are also useful for seeing if different forms of an allergen are tolerated, for example, eggs and baked goods as opposed to on their own, and for testing if a patient has outgrown his or her allergy. Management of food allergies is not the most exciting thing. Avoid the foods that are triggers, and if there's any history or concern for anaphylaxis, carry an EpiPen for backup. You should also give patients education about reading the labels on any new foods they try and consider getting them a medical alert bracelet. After diagnosis, patients should have regular follow-up for education reinforcement and to review their history to see if there are any signs of improvement or worsening in their allergy symptoms. Immunotherapy is a developing field in the management of food allergies. Again, don't worry about the details of the immunology, but the idea is that exposure to small amounts of antigen can eventually desensitize the immune system and reduce the risk of severe reactions. Oral tolerance, no reaction at all after an ingestion, is the holy grail for food allergy therapy, but nothing is quite there at this point. Instead, literature about immunotherapy usually talks about response to treatment in terms of desensitization and sustained unresponsiveness. Desensitization is defined as an increase in the reaction threshold during the time the patient is actively receiving immunotherapy. 
To use peanuts as an example, if peanut dust was enough to trigger a reaction prior to treatment, the patient might be able to tolerate accidentally eating half a peanut while the therapy is going on if they've been desensitized. Desensitization is most useful in protecting against those accidental ingestions, but it typically takes months to develop. Sustained unresponsiveness, a lack of reaction after active therapy is discontinued, takes years of therapy to develop, and patients often seem to slide back into having reactions again. Immunotherapy comes in three forms, oral, sublingual, and epicutaneous, all with their pluses and minuses. Oral immunotherapy is the most studied route and involves daily treatment with an allergen powder. It seems to have a pretty large effect for desensitization, and some groups even move on to sustained unresponsiveness. Unfortunately, it also has the highest risk of side effects. Because the patient is swallowing the allergen, the side effects are likely to be systemic and can include anaphylaxis. The risk of anaphylaxis gets higher if the patient has fevers, infections, is menstruating, or even if they exercise close to when they take their treatment. The other two types of immunotherapy, sublingual allergen drops and epicutaneous patches, have better side effect profiles, but seem to be less effective based on the limited information I could find. Sublingual treatment has a moderate to small desensitization effect, and epicutaneous has been pretty variable, and neither of them have much data about sustained unresponsiveness. Any side effects are typically local, so it's lower risk to go along with a lower potential benefit. There isn't much you can do for management once someone has a food allergy, but it might be possible to prevent them from developing in the first place. When a baby is first introduced to solids, anywhere between 4 and 6 months, Parents should start new foods one at a time and wait at least two or three days in between adding new foods to give time to see if any kind of reaction develops and to know what to blame it on. Technically, you're supposed to keep following that timeline, introducing single ingredient foods every two to three days until your child has been introduced to everything one at a time. But for most people, that goes out the window right around a year because at that point you have a toddler who is hungry right now. When it comes to foods that are a higher allergy risk, Peanuts, shellfish, eggs, and things like that. You should be a little more careful. Give the first bite, then wait 5 to 10 minutes before the second to give time for a reaction to develop if it's going to. You don't want to find out that your kid is anaphylactic to shellfish after you've already given her two shrimp tails. But when should you introduce the high-risk foods? The recommendation used to be to wait until kids were over a year old, but that all changed with the LEAP trial. LEAP stands for Learning Early About Peanut Allergy, and the results were published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2015. This was a huge deal. George Dutat, I'm sorry if I got that wrong, I'm not great with French names, and his colleagues noticed that Jewish kids in the UK had 10 times the rate of peanut allergy compared to Israeli kids with similar ancestry, and that one major difference between the two groups is that Israeli kids ate peanut products earlier in life. They decided to test the theory that early exposure to peanuts decreased the risk of developing a peanut allergy. They recruited over 600 kids between 4 and 11 months old who were at high risk for having a peanut allergy based on having severe atopic dermatitis, egg allergy, or both, and randomized them to regularly consume peanut products, at least 6 grams of peanut protein per week divided over at least 3 meals, which isn't much, or to avoid peanuts until age 5. There was some pre-screening, everybody had a peanut challenge before randomization to make sure they didn't already have an allergy, and they followed the patients with clinic visits and frequent phone calls. Once they hit the 5-year-old visit, patients got another peanut challenge to see where they were. You might already know, or at least guessed, that the peanut consumption group had a lower rate of allergy, but the results were really impressive. 13.7% of patients in the peanut avoidance group had a peanut allergy at the end of the trial 
compared to just 1.9% of kids who ate peanuts. Remember that 2017 addendum to the NIAID guidelines I mentioned at the start of the episode? That was because of the LEAP trial. It specifically said that peanuts should be introduced at 4-6 to six months. Making a change in 2017 based on an article published in 2015 seems like a long time, but it's practically overnight when it comes to national guidelines. And that's all for food allergies. If you get nothing else out of this episode, remember to get a thorough history before you even think about testing for allergies. A true allergy is going to be a consistent response to a specific food. If the history fits, skin prick testing is preferred as long as the patient doesn't have any skin conditions and can stay off antihistamines prior to the test. Once the allergy is confirmed, avoidance is the best way to manage it going forward with epinephrine if you've got any worries about anaphylaxis. Finally, encourage your parents with young infants to introduce peanuts, shellfish, and other potential allergens along with the rest of the solid foods. If you have any concerns about the baby being a high risk for allergy or anaphylaxis, you can always refer to an allergist for pre-screening. Thanks for listening. This episode should make it a little easier for you the next time you have to figure out whether or not a patient has a food allergy. If you like what you heard, please give us a rating at iTunes, Google Play Music, or wherever else you find your podcasts. I'm always open to suggestions. Just email pedsoup, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P, at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Peds Soup.